Welcome to CinemaScope, a new podcast from True Story FM. Hi, I'm Andy Nelson, co-host of the Next Real Film podcast and Movies We Like. As a passionate movie lover, I've always relished exploring the diverse landscape of cinema. And when you look closer at the taxonomy of genres, subgenres, and film movements, you see an intricate web of interconnections and influences. This complex cinematic family tree spans only 125 years. So how did styles as diverse as the French New Wave, New Queer Cinema, and Ozploitation emerge? What cultural, economic, and technological forces sculpted these styles? And what hidden threads unite them all as part of the same fantastic art form? Those questions sent me on a journey to explore each style and trace their impacts, all to better understand the bridges between different styles. And that led me here to CinemaScope. In each episode, I'll be exploring one particular genre, subgenre, or film movement in depth, inviting expert guests to help us all better understand what defines that style, how it came to be, and what branches it, in turn, influenced on this big cinematic family tree. For example, how did German Expressionism shape American film noir? What's the difference between Westerns, Spaghetti Westerns, and Brazilian Nordesterns? We'll examine the economic and socio-political forces that birthed categories like black exploitation, and we'll spotlight visionary films and directors key to the evolution of different styles. So join me as we explore the complex forces that shape film's evolution and appreciate the diverse creativity possible in its relatively brief history. Let Cinemascope be your guide to understanding this art form we cherish how its genres blend, bounce off each other, and advance a rich tapestry of storytelling innovation. Together, we'll gain a deeper appreciation for this wondrous, shape-shifting medium. Our journey begins soon. Be part of this adventure by subscribing to CinemaScope today. We have two trailers this week, Andy. We have two trailers. One is the original Swedish trailer, uh, for the girl who played with fire. And one is the, yes, red band U.S. cut of the very same movie. Oh, my. Oh, my. Much naughtier. You know what it is? It it demonstrates once again that we in the United States are complete prudes. We are such prudes. Yeah, we are. It was like the same trailer. And, well, and he drops he drops the F-bomb in the uh, Swedish trailer. Right? And, <laughs> and not in ours. Like, what was it that made it red band in... In the U.S. trailer, <laughs> no idea. Her naked back. I guess I don't know. Wasn't there? Was there a bloody uh, face on that one? I can't remember where she's post. Oh, grave. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. But it seemed to me that what this this looking at these two trailers side by side demonstrated completely to me that the Swedes are adults and we are children. We are. I hate that. And it's it's uh, it's funny because the U.S. trailer also is so clearly done by U.S. trailer writers. It's so terrible. Now, the girl with the dragon tattoo will play with fire. <laughs> it's like, oh, really? Did they really just do that? <laughs> Light a match. Play with fire. Oh, and then the, the text, so of course. Dumb. You know, They framed her for murder. He must prove her innocence. But only she can take revenge. Fight fire with, with fire. fire. Good grief. 
Good grief. This is like the worst example of U.S. trailer writing. It's so So, so clear. So schlock. This is not a trailer that would have gotten me into the theater. The only thing that would have gotten me in is the fact that it was the sequel to The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yes, but it's interesting. It was awful. <laughs> it was awful. I it's hard know. to say what would have gotten me into the theater since I never saw this in the theater. I, I think you're right, though. It is. It, it's just the act of of having it a, a part of the Millennium trilogy, and I was so into the books that, that that's what would have gotten me there. I, I mean, I saw this and I saw um, all three of these in the theater, and it was really just because of the the uh, the fact that it was all part of Stieg Larsson's Millennium trilogy. So um, I was quite Man, excited I, to. I was uh, catch just it. not. I was just not aware that they were even in theaters uh, because I. I guess I caught the books so late. Well, and this was pre-children for me, um, yeah. so it was like right on the uh, the cusp of uh, of my first. Uh, no, sorry, I actually did have my daughter. It was uh, just my my son was like right about to be born. So I, I think we were in an, a period where it was easier to find a babysitter, though. <laughs> so uh, we were able to actually get over to the art house theater a little more frequently than we did uh, later. Okay. All right. Well, so you have an excuse. I guess. I guess. Uh, the only thing that, that gives me more pleasure than just the fact that this we're still talking about the Millennium Trilogy is that we get to talk about my favorite, Soren Starmouse. He's back. He's <laughs> back. Soren Starmouse. Oh, Soren Starmouse. Save us, Soren. Save us from the blonde Neanderthal. This year, one cinematic event captivated audiences across the globe. Now, the girl with the dragon tattoo will play with fire. This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, we're just trying to keep up with Lizbeth tonight as we join director Daniel Alfredson for his take on The Girl Who Played With Fire. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And I have to say, uh, if, you ha- if you don't have a favorite podcast app, you should check out Overcast, and and I'll tell you why. Just briefly, the maker of Overcast just released a tool for podcast producers that is so amazing that saves me so much time each week. And all he asks for is, hey, if you're feeling generous, just mention the podcast app that I make, Overcast, and then he's releasing it for free. This production tool, it's amazing. So here you go. If you don't have a podcast app that is your favorite, you should check out Overcast because it really is great. It's the one I use. It's the one I use. Oh, there you go. So thank you, Marco, and thank you uh, for giving us Forecast for free. Please check out Overcast. Uh, Overcast app. uh, I think it's overcastfm.com or in your app store of choice. There you go. Fantastic. Now it's your turn. All right, now it's my turn. And if you enjoy our podcast whether it's on Overcast or wherever it is, and you're interested in supporting our ongoing work investigating great films like this one, please consider a regular donation through our Patreon page. You'll get to join our back-channel conversations on Slack, listen to the members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee, and get better chances of being a part of our listeners' choice episodes. 
Just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. We'll play with fire. This is a tricky Soren Starmouse's uh, uh, movie here. Is a tricky one. Yes. Right? Second second film in, in the trilogy, and it felt to me like a second film. It's it is a tricky one, especially with the ending that this one has. This really kind of followed the uh uh Empire Strikes Back uh sort of storytelling where it ends on uh, a bit of a cliffhanger. It's not a clean ending for a sequel. Um, which you do get in plenty of other sequels where it, you know, the sequel is its own separate film. Um, but, you know, just like this, uh, and I mean, uh, The Matrix uh, Revolutions or uh, Empire Strikes Back, this one ends on kind of this, this dark cliff note that you're like, okay, uh, where are we going to go for the next one? And I mean, obviously, it's based on a series of books. And so, People who are fans of the book are going to know, you know, where we go from here. But otherwise, it is a little bit dark and it puts it into this tricky place of what do we do with these characters? And I know that Stieg Larsson had a whole series of Millennium stories that he was wanting to tell. And he only got to tell three of them before he uh, died way too early. But um, but it's interesting how the the second and the third really kind of become one story that gets split across two films as we really dig into um uh Lisbeth Salander's backstory um which we definitely start touching on in the first film but it's really these two that become like her story well totally and you can feel that if you let it if you're watching the extended everything version on Netflix and you just let it play from part four, the end of the second movie, to part five, it, it feels like no, it never ended. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I mean, it really feels like just one solid part. Yeah, especially the way that Netflix like cuts off the credits on the, yeah. the front and back ends. You're like, oh, wait a minute. All of a sudden, you're in the movie. And it's uh, it can be a little uh, deceptive because it does feel very much like just this, this uh, very long nine-hour saga. You know, I, I don't mean to sidetrack, but I realized I remember what I wanted to talk to you about so bad, Andrew, 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 <laughs> <laughs> so bad is the credits on the extended edition. They're different than the uh, than the theatrical. And I, I had asked you about it last time. And I'm now that I know you've seen them. I w- want to get your thoughts. I I didn't. I didn't like them. I, I thought they were interesting. <laughs> they were done in an interesting way. Okay, first we, we we should actually tell people who haven't watched this version what they are. I that was a terrible yeah, I mean, setup on my part. Right, way to go. Yeah, uh, I failed. They're basically um they're paintings of scenes from the film um that are gonna happen. So it really is very spoilery because you're getting little bits and pieces of of what's going uh, to happen over the course of the of the next three hours? It, it's all the films, though. It's all because these same credits were on the first movie too, and so you see the motorcycle guy, and uh, you see all of those shots were, you know, interesting on the first yeah. movie too. Yeah, so yeah, so super so you get, you get lots of little bits and pieces over the whole thing, which I I don't like that much. It's 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 kind of a strange thing. I mean, as as kind of interesting and artsy as they might be, I just wasn't sure that it was the right way to go. But I I, I don't know. I kind of felt like it was it was a credit sequence done with 
basically them saying, oh, everybody's already seen this. Let's just you know give them the quick highlights. Because then you also get the recaps, which is always throws me a little bit. You know, I start yeah. watching, I'm like, oh, what's the first scene? Oh, wait, no, this is a recap of the last uh, last one. Yeah, I don't like that at all. Uh, but the tra- the credits I thought were really interesting because they also chose the the super intense, you know, scenes of sexual violence. They painted them quite artfully. And so you have those in the opening credits. Like you get you get the works. Oh yes, you do. You definitely do. They must be assuming they have to be assuming that you've you've read the books or you know, already I seen think the they have to be, cuts. yeah. They have I mean, to. obviously it was hugely popular. So I think that yeah. they are just making the assumption that everybody involved uh, or everybody who's looking at this has already is, is familiar with the story and what's happening. Well, I, I uh, derailed you in your initial thoughts, Go, but please continue. What was I talking about again? <laughs> <laughs> well, we were talking about the, the trickiness of it being a second film, and you had a wonderful treatise on uh, the comparison between this and Empire Strikes Back. I think I, I think I pretty much summed it up. It's just it's a challenging um, chunk of story. And in this particular one, it's interesting because you, you've got this, um, you've built this brilliant partnership between uh, Bloomquist and uh, Salander in the first film as they kind of come to this alliance and work with each other to solve this, this 40-year-old cold case. And now, uh, at the end of that one, she leaves, she sees him, she's kind of, her heart's broken and she goes off and now she travels the world. She hangs out in the Caribbean, uh, and, uh, with all of her money and kind of sets up a new life for herself away from everybody, including Mikhail. And then, um, and then he through Millennium, the magazine, and this is what, where it really does feel like this is a saga of Millennium and the stories that they are telling kind of starts feeling like it's coming into play. You know, the first one, you know, I guess it's the Venestrom story, although that's kind of a very loose thread because mostly yeah. we're not, not involved in the magazine at all. But the second, by the, by the time we get to the second one, now it feels like, okay, this is millennium. This is what it's about. We are investigating sex crimes, these sex trade, you know, they're, they're importing women from Russia and, uh, or from, I can't remember where, and um, it, putting them into the sex trade. And it's, it's this expose that millennium is trying to do. And that is the crux of the story in this particular um, movie. Now, Mikhail is trying to kind of dig through this with Dog, uh, one of their new employees. And kind of like the first, it, it's, it's weird because like the second film, they're like, okay, we're going to go back to some of the tropes that worked in the first story. Lizbeth is kind of sol- trying to solve it on her own. She's kind of piecing these things together. Mikhail's trying to piece it together. And finally, they start coming together midway through. Here and there, they never physically come together until the very end of the film. But mm-hmm. they uh, they start coming together midway through, uh, just through conversation and real, really just him finding her place. And uh, it just kind of falls to some of those tropes. And so it works. I think the film... For the most part, I mean, it's a very interesting story. I really like it, but uh, it does feel like they, uh, you know, like Stieg Larsson, when he was telling the story, went back to kind of some of the stuff that worked really well in the first time. I think so, too. But what's more interesting even than that is it felt like it was presented in an even more pedestrian way uh, in the hands of Daniel Alfredson. I had I found myself wandering 
and having to, I'd, I'd have to go back and watch sequences again to make sure I, I caught it. it. It felt like it was, uh, there wasn't enough energy on screen, wasn't enough movement on screen. Uh, it, even the most intense sequences I felt like were presented in uh, as proscenium and, and sort of bland. Uh, and, and I really struggled with it. And that's, that surprised me, um, especially given the, the pedigree, uh, the sort of family legacy that, uh, Daniel Alfredson, uh, comes from. Um, you know, his brother is is obviously Thomas Alfredson, and he did one of my very favorites, the 2011 version of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Uh, in addition to Let the Right One In, I know you have thoughts on that, right? Uh, it's uh, It wasn't one of my favorites. I thought it was really interesting, and I guess that's where I stand with it. I, I, I think yeah. that it, it worked for me because it was kind of an interesting take on the vampire stories, mm-hmm. but I just didn't walk out of it loving it like a lot of people did. So, And, and his father is Hans Alfredson, an actor and writer, and, and um, um, you know, they, they, it's sort of a one of the legendary Swedish families, as, as I understand it. And uh, and so I was I found myself disappointed. I don't know if I, I went into it this time wanting, you know, just with, with higher expectations. I didn't have a very strong memory of what it of, of what it was like visually. Um, and, and so I I wanted it to be more we had, a you know, the our friend of the show, uh, Mr. Tilkovist in Slack, who, who had pointed us to this, that, um, you know, that Alfredson has has a, some Swedish pedigree here. Uh, and so I went into it really wanting more than I feel like I got. I feel like maybe you're being a little hard on it. But at the same time, I also kind of agree with you. <laughs> I, I, so I don't know if that so makes me doing? wishy-washy. You're, it's your wishy-washy or you're just letting me take the fall. Yeah, I'm not quite sure what it is. Uh, but I, I feel like like I watched it and I'm like, I, 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 I get it. I can see that it is fairly pedestrian. But at the same time, like I was looking at this maybe through different eyes of low budget producer. There was a very limited budget that uh, Daniel Alfredson had to work with when he put this together. It was like less than half of what uh, Niels had uh, when he did the first film. And but it's the same length of film. And so putting my my low budget producer hat on, I'm like, you know, for considering what he had to work with, I actually feel like he moved forward pretty adeptly. And yes, there are times where it might feel pretty pedestrian, but I also felt like I did notice little touches. Like I felt like there were things throughout where I could see, you know, he's trying to do something a little more with the limited time and budget that he had available to him. So I maybe that's where I'm sitting. I, I can see your point, but I'm trying to appreciate the position that he was in. <laughs> well, I and I, I, I will, I will be with you there. I appreciate that too, mostly because you just made me feel really bad, um, <laughs> and so that's okay. I, I can, I can be that guy, and I. I would put some of this in the hands of of Peter uh, Mokrosinski, uh, a cinematographer. It you know there were some isolated sequences that were very very strong, and there were sequences that I found sort of baffling, bafflingly uh, mundane. The the sequence where the um, you know our our favorite thug uh, lights the barn on fire. Uh, it, it it felt like there was just no uh, no threat, no heart in it. Uh, at all, I, I never got the feeling that they were in uh, great danger, being trapped in this in this burning barn, because 
barn was like falling apart. They well, literally walked through the wall. And so it was not presented in a way that that made me feel like there was any danger to them. And I feel like that was that's just that that's not a, a budgetary issue, right? That's a visionary issue. That's where do you put the camera? How do you shoot the same elements, the same actors in a way that makes it feel more threatening? And um, and and I so I, I'm, I'm not sure that I buy the the budget for time argument in these kinds of arguments i i feel like i mean i totally agree because that scene i felt like um you know i i did not have a good sense of space like when he was inside when paolo was trying to kick the wall down the Mm -hmm. flaming wall was that the same wall that uh niederman was outside watching like yes. it was very confusing like <laughs> very is, confusing. is Niederman gonna see Paolo and Miriam like walk out uh like it, it just the setup was very poor as far as kind of giving me a sense of the space and 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 how are they actually trying to escape and it's you know, that to and that they, end yeah. I and definitely they let agree. Niederman drive off like he drives off before the barn has fallen it like you just you okay you're gonna try to burn somebody alive in a barn you want to make sure that they're really burned alive in a barn Right, you want to finish the job. Yes, but I mean, it's it's that's a that goes back to the book. I mean, it's you know that's what happens. They get they somehow escape from the book, right? Or right, in, well, from the right, right. They escape. I just mean he he didn't even he was he just phoned it in. In terms of a a hit, this was this was a weak weak one. Even the book felt more intense. Well, and and to that end, I don't know. Again, it's just like you're dealing with a big, expensive fire. You know, you're doing these big burns, and that's very expensive. So I, I can see them just trying to find ways to shoot it so they could get all the shots without necessarily having had a chance to think about it. But in the end, it does fall on Alfredson and the way that he chose to shoot it. I mean, perhaps it needed a little more forethought as far as making sure that the angles were right. So that when it cut together, it didn't look like Paolo was going to burst out right in front of Niederman. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, that, you, you have this image that Niederman is just going to say, oh, good on you. Good on you. Uh, yeah, you made he's it driving right. away. Nice <laughs> waves. work. And I, I didn't think you could do it. You pulled through. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> um, so, so there are elements like that throughout. And I, I think that's going to be a, a struggle that we're um, always going to have with this, especially because that, I mean, that's kind of the big midway point scene, right? That's kind of yeah. the, the cliffhanger end for the first half. And then, you know, it's very like you don't even see them escape. You just, you know, in the beginning of part two, uh, you you see them in the hospital already. So right. You see them kicking the wall right from the inside. You don't see them come out. Right. That's yeah. that's that's where it ends. And you feel like, OK, they just died. If it's going to be that midpoint thing, I guess I can see it working if you're watching it in the TV fashion. But theatrically like i was trying to remember how the theatrical cut played because obviously it i mean it those two scenes happen so quickly back to back where it, it seems like it's going to take all the the surprise out where you cut from them to all of a sudden now they're in the hospital the other challenge that this one has which you alluded to in the beginning is this is trying to tie together parts of the world of millennium uh, that we didn't get to experience because the first movie was so much about, you know, uh, Lisbeth and the, you know, the the story of the Vengers, right. um, and and so we didn't spend a lot of time uh, in in you know the city proper uh, with the newspaper, and so this felt 
in terms of the middle child syndrome, this felt really chaotic to me. It felt like it it did not do a, a good job of of tying together all of these threads so that they felt like a tapestry. It felt like a number of different movies that I was watching in turn and uh, never really resolved one way or another. And I did not see a, a clean uh, a tie. Uh, to, I, I remember reading the book and I felt like, damn, that he, Zala is her dad. No, that was stunning to me. And, Obviously, I already knew going into to this viewing that that was the case, but there was no sense of emotional sort of urgency or surprise to that. And I think it's because I didn't feel like there was a solid connection to from this sex trafficking story that we've been talking about with Millennium and ultimately that the crazy theater irony, the cinema irony that she's actually tied in, that, that Liz, this is actually Lizbeth's family. Like, it, it just felt like a, they, they did not sort of artfully present that argument on screen. Yeah, they, it, it comes out um, in a fairly flat way where it's like, oh, okay. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't like the big Luke, I am your father sort of reveal. You know, it's just this, you know, it, yeah. it's Lizbeth's papa. And that's kind of that's kind of it. It it takes some of the uh, that emotional build out of it. And even when um, uh, you're with her as she's working on the investigation, trying to trying to piece all this stuff together, as, so that she can figure out you know why she's being framed and and all of this. Um, it it doesn't like I get no sense of anything from her. And it's a struggle that I have with Lizbeth in this particular story is. There's not much to it. I mean, there. I, I shouldn't say that. There are some great moments. Like, I think that the moment between her and Miriam, um, when she's giving Miriam the apartment, is a really touching uh, scene where mm-hmm. you kind of see her letting her guard down a little bit. I really enjoy watching her kind of, uh, you know, just, you know, having that great relationship with Miriam. Miriam gives her the birthday present, just all that great stuff. I really love that. Likewise, the scene when she's with Miriam um, in the hospital. I think those two scenes just work so well. But when it's when it's Lizbeth doing the investigation work, there's just nothing there. Like, I feel like she already knows everything. And that's kind of my struggle with this particular film. As much as I enjoy it, I feel like, you know, she knows everything. All she doesn't know is where Zala is, is mm-hmm. kind of my sense of it. And so it takes some of the the thrill out of uncovering the mystery because I feel like I'm just I'm just behind with Mikhail trying to piece together what Lizbeth already knows. And she's being very um you know coy about what she's gonna give you, you know, and so it's it's it, I it's not as exciting a mystery to uncover, at least the way that it's portrayed here. Do you know what I found myself missing from the last movie? Hmm. Uh, sexy research. Do you know, I mean, I know that it, it may have ended up coming off as sort of redundant uh, in this movie, but that's one of the things that that I felt like Dragon Tattoo is known for is the research that goes in with the investigation, right? That we get to uncover clues, visual clues on screen that allow us to tie threads together of an investigation. And I didn't get any of that. All that research was already done, right? That was the, the you know, Dag and Mia's, um, you know, sex crime research, you like uncovering all that stuff. And I'm sure they had their walls covered with pictures taped up and everything too. And they had the thumbtacks and, and string and all that. But that's, 
that's I found myself really missing that. Like I I want to see these characters who are demonstrably uh, gifted in this area. I want to see them do that. Yeah, that was cool. Well, and and uh, I mean, I guess the benefit here is instead of just having them piecing together all that historic information and trying to kind of put put together what happened and you're getting the flashbacks and everything here you are actually getting conversations with people and so to that end i i think that it is kind of nice you get the conversations with gunner bjork when mikhail goes to visit him and try to kind of figure out who is this zala and all of that um, you get uh, all of the mystery around uh, Niederman, which I think is pretty interesting, and the the, the two bikers, um, and uh, and kind of the end of Nils uh, Nils uh, Bjurman. Um, so there's there there are interesting elements going on here, um, but uh, so the re- so it's different research. But I mean, yeah. yes, I, I see what you're saying though. You know, you get there. There is kind of something that's a little done a little more interestingly the way that they're doing that research there and maybe it is just that there is kind of this joy in watching the cold case flashbacks in that film where you're kind of seeing all of that kind of come into place as they're uncovering it i mean i the greatest bit for me is the piecing of all the photos together to make that little movie so he realizes you know harriet turns her head and sees somebody and leaves yes that was like such a fantastic bit of uh, uh discovery work and it's it's discovery work that we don't get to see very often right in these yeah, kinds right. of movies usually it is it is left to just sort of the the aha moment at the end and we don't actually see how all these pieces of evidence get tied together and on that point one of the things that i i think i was looking forward to was a little bit stronger performance Performance from Boblansky and the police. Uh, you know, if, if we don't have the hardcore investigation going on from our principal characters, at least give the police the opportunity to demonstrate that they are actually doing something right. And and in the book, we had much more of, I mean, there was definitely a conflict, uh, but we had much more of sort of the investigation, the cat and mouse investigation. And I think in this film, Boblansky was just left as a as kind of a byproduct and a, a, a buffoon. Well, and my recollection is there's even more of here than there was in the theatrical cut, yeah, which is about an hour shorter. Um, the thing about him is uh, that I still struggle with in this cut, the longer cut, is you know he has this turn where all of a sudden he's just like, "Hey, I don't think she did it either." Yeah, out of the blue, and I'm like, "Why? Where is this coming from?" Because he was never on Mikhail's side; he was always kind of you know, the one who Mikhail didn't trust. And then all of a sudden he comes in and he's just like, oh, I didn't think she did it either. And I'm like, why is he all of a sudden, I mean, other than that, he looks like a nice guy and I want him to be on her their side. But in the story, I'm just like, I, I you know, it just kind of comes out of left field for me. Let's do the deep scene dive, Andy. Let's do it. This is a, this is a surprisingly little, uh, modest little scene. Dog has, uh, has uncovered some information and, and uh, Mikhail's going to head over to his apartment later to uh, to find out what what's going on. Um, he's talking to his sister, uh, as we learned from the first film. She's a lawyer, and he asks her for some advice. He needs some legal advice about um, what they can publish um, about some of the um, the Johns involved in this story. And so she goes with him over to Dog and Mia's house. And that's where the scene begins as as Mikhail and his sister arrive at Dog and Mia's flat. 
what it, it's an interesting sequence um dog and mia make an appearance uh but it's uh so it, it's they're stoic <laughs> that's one way of putting it <laughs> Uh, this the sequence really is. It begins with uh, Mikael getting out of the car, and he he runs across the street and hops upstairs. And and uh, his his journey upstairs is, um, I, I think, the highlight of this little two minute sequence for me. Uh, it is it, it it does a wonderful job of unveiling the world inside their apartment and what's going on uh, without doing it in in a, a really overtly sort of dramatic fashion, right? Because the, the police have not been called. But we do know that there is some sort of emergency activity because all of the old people are in their robes in the, in the hallway coming downstairs, and they are looking at him like uh, like he's a lunatic. Now, you know, why are you going upstairs? You know, why why would you want to go up there? We're all going this way. Protect yourself. Uh, you know, we're, you need to come downstairs. And... So we get this steady cam sequence uh, where you know we're on him as he moves up this large spiral staircase into the apartment with the door open, only to discover uh, that Dag and uh, Mia are uh, have been assassinated. Yeah, it's uh, and what's nice about it is while we're outside of the apartment, we're kind of behind him as he's kind of you know spryly leaping toward the door to run in as he tells his sister, you know, just be there for two minutes. Um, and then once we're inside, uh, we're kind of uh, leading him all the time. We As he's coming up the stairs, we're already ahead of him. As he's going into the apartment, we're already ahead of him. When he sees the body, we're watching him see the body. And what's nice mm-hmm. about the way that that is structured camera-wise is it's very much, uh, yes, we're kind of in the lead position, but at the same time, we are backs to everything and and it's really about him and what he's finding and so you get a really nice reaction shot when he finally sees the body of dog lying on the floor and it's a lot of steady cam work and as he sees the body and freezes the camera booms down and tilts up so the, all of a sudden you're kind of coming under him almost from the POV of dog's body. And then you cut to dog and then you do that. The, the, um, the jump cut to the tighter shot of him before you cut back to Mikhail. And when he goes to find Mia's body, it's, it's nicely done. It's very simple. Uh, this whole minute and 20 seconds is about what we're looking at here. There's only 11 shots in it. It's very, very brief, very tight the way that it's structured and i think that it works nicely to convey everything going on in the scene and at the same time done in a simple way where i you know looking at it again from that low budget production sensibility i can see uh you know uh alfredson choosing to shoot it this way because he could get through it a lot quicker um in the course of their production schedule to kind of uh, make, make his uh, make his schedule. So I, I liked the efficiency going on here. And this was what I was talking about earlier when I was saying, you know, Alfredson has little moments throughout that I can see he's trying to do something with what he has. And it's, it's that nice lead up to the moment of seeing Doc and how how the camera kind of drops down when he sees it and giving him that nice position. Same thing when he goes into the other room and he turns and opens the door and, and finds Mia. 
it starts on the bed, an empty bed, and it's all POV. And then the camera pans over to the left and you see just blood on the, the wall. And then the camera tilts down to reveal her body before cutting back to Mikhail. It's, I, I think that it's very just clean, efficient filmmaking done here. So, uh, so I, I like the way the scene is put together. I really do too. And I think, you know, to the point we were making earlier, this is, uh, as you say, it is enormously efficient and practical given budgetary and time constraints. And it is still, I think, one of the better ways to portray this sequence. That constraint, the POV constraint that we have here, that we don't get to see what is going on outside the frame of the camera, even though we know what we're about to see as this camera tilts up and down, revealing the blood spatter and then the body contorted on the floor. Like The constraint that we have since we are jammed into his POV is enormously effective here. It is really strong emotional camera work, and it's super simple. Uh, And and, and doesn't take a lot of shots. It doesn't take a lot of, uh, you know, multiple cameras and rigs. I mean, it's, it is really intimate uh, filmmaking and I think demonstrates, you know, sort of the, the way they think about what they're putting on screen when they're at their very best in this in this movie. And, and it's, it is one of the very highs. Unfortunately, it sort of peaks in a sea of, of I think, you know, modest lows. Yeah. Uh, and again, it's... Uh, uh, in the world of kind of you know shooting quick, you're going to get a few of these. You're not going to have a whole film full of great stuff like this. Yeah, but I right. do think that at least there's signs when I watch it that they are trying. Yeah, so I appreciate that. Well, and it, it makes me more curious to see the third uh, section. I've only watched about 15 minutes of the third, uh, the I say the the fifth part. Uh, of six, the third movie, and uh, I'm I'm more curious to see how they unravel the drama and and uh, in, in that movie, given you know elements like this. Yeah, I agree. I already mentioned the camera, Peter Mokrasinski, uh, and his work of the Steadicam and effective use, art direction, uh, Maria Hard. <laughs> There's Jan a, Olaf Argren. All, all those A's and uh, umlauts. Hard, those aren't, those aren't those even aren't umlauts. umlauts. No, what are those, those? I don't know. The circle over the A? I don't even know what you call that. The, the gravas or something? Gravas. I don't I even don't know, know what that is. But I love the hair and makeup. Jenny Fred. Jenny Fred. It's those actually, are two names I can I can handle. Oh, here you go. It's called It's called a ring. Oh, <laughs> Yes, it's it's. Uh, I feel like I was reading like high elvish. <laughs> it, it's a part of the letter itself, which is considered different from the letter it appears. Letter it appears over. Look at so, that. So, how do you pronounce it? Is the question dog to denote a Jenny long Fred. and darker a? It's a darker a. It's a darker a. So for Maria Har, that's two a's back to back with rings over both of them. Hard. <laughs> Maria Hard. Oh, this is really terrible. I know. It's Think like this what? is why people show up. <laughs> they do. They love hearing you try to speak in foreign tongue. <laughs> it's so bad. Okay. All right. Well, enough about that. The art direction uh, is, it, you know, for, to me, it looked like a, a well appointed, IKEA appointed Swedish home. It did. And that's something I really, really enjoyed. Actually, at a different point in the film, when we see. When she uh, moved into her apartment? When she moves in and she's, it's all <laughs> IKEA. And that just cracked me up because I don't know, for some reason, IKEA, I mean, obviously, <laughs> it's Swedish. 
But seeing Swedish people use it just for some reason seemed tick- weird to me. <laughs> it totally tickles me too. I'm not kidding. I thought, isn't that isn't that awesome? I know. <laughs> so why is that? It's still such a novelty. I don't know. Do you have uh, IKEAs there? We do. Yep. Do you have like more than one? I imagine you just do. One. We just have one. Just one. Uh, we we have one. It's really far away from us, and so it's quite a novelty. Uh, when we go and so to see her unpacking those boxes uh, the pan- frying pans and the everything uh, it's it really it really well, it, it, it was nice <laughs> to see that you know she she puts her ikea furniture together just like we do just like we do <laughs> uh i uh i actually we I, I use ikea pillows if i may throw a plug i would be more than happy to be sponsored by the great ikea organization <laughs> I am a big fan of IKEA pillows and bedding. That if you haven't funny. explored that, that they're very, very well done, and I, I think great for warm climates uh, or cool. Uh, we have quite a bit of IKEA product in our house. The, the dog, <laughs> dog, and I think our pillows are dog and stock, stockdom, dragon stockdoms. <laughs> Yeah. something like what, that something like that anyway i want i want to say the kids beds are gulags but i know that's the wrong <laughs> word <laughs> uh, oh, actually it might be the right word gul it's like g-u-l-a-g yeah like i'll bet it has a gulag. ring on it gulag. gulag gulag yeah i don't know oh this makes me want to start learning swedish just so I can pronounce hard, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so hair and makeup, Jenny Fred, and costumes, Sila uh, Rorby. Uh, and uh, so that's uh, those are the principles for getting people to look like they do. Uh, I, I think they, you know, they, they don't really linger on the dead bodies on this one. So, um, you know, they look particularly horrifying. And uh, then we move on. Yeah, I think everybody looks fine for the scenes. I, I, you know, really, really no issues. I mean, largely a lot of these people are the same team who came over from the first film with yep. uh, Nils Arden Oplu. But uh, I, I don't think it's the same cinematographer, though. It was not um, Peter Mokrasinski, right? Largely, it still fits in the same world. Um, and, and in fact, we don't get anything here, but I do think that they have some nice play with some of the flashback scenes to young uh, Salander in the um, in the hospital, kind of that really kind of that awful hospital green tint uh, flashback bits that we have. Dragon tattoo was Eric Cress. There you go. Yeah, yeah. but J- Jacob Groth did the music in both. This we we have very little music in this particular scene that we're looking at, but what we do get, and we don't talk about this too often, but it's really just that kind of like that tone setting that we have, that instrumental music kicking in right before the reveal of dog. It's really right when uh, when Mikhail sees the body, and all of a sudden you just get this tone that just builds a little bit as all these reveals happen, and it carries us pretty much to the end of the scene uh, once we cut back to. Um, uh, Annika out in her car as she hears the sirens coming. Um, but it's it, it's nothing musical that you would listen to. You certainly wouldn't find something like this on the album. It's just like, you know, a minute of mood. Well, and it works very well with the the rest of the sound design of the sequence, which is absolutely, um, yeah. which is you know dramatic and and uh, it's a there's a nice sense of uh, of that sort of wonder in the beginning of the sequence, and then you know when we start sort of feeling like we're in his head. Um, you know, the sound plays very well. Carl Aga Hansen, uh, Andreas Kongsgaard, and Ola Tannergaard. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Not, yeah. not, not bad. Yeah. No, not they do a bad. good job with it. Yeah. Uh, editing by Matthias Moorhaden. 
And uh, that is a new editor, and Oster, Osterud uh, edited the Dragon Tattoo. Uh, and, you know, like you said, a few, this is a sequence of few shots. This one, I was joking last week, this one really does feel like it was edited patiently. Well, and I think part of it is the story uh, feels like it's not quite as grand in scale. Like that last one felt like there was a lot of stuff going on with the Vangers. I mean, there's so many Vangers and the history of the Vangers and their corporation and all of that stuff going on uh, with him, with with uh, Lizbeth, with uh, Venestrum. I mean, there's just so much stuff going on. This one felt a lot more... Um, straightforward, I guess. Uh, mostly, it was just kind of about Sala and this this uh, ring of uh, uh, sex slaves, basically that they have, and everybody's trying to stop them. Um, it seemed a lot more simple. Obviously, mm-hmm. we're still getting a lot of uh, flashes to Elizabeth's past and stuff like that, but it doesn't it doesn't feel as complex. the uh, The script of the movie was uh, by Jonas Freikberg. I, I wish that I had read these books more recently so I could really compare uh, w- what Freikberg did with the uh, the book in the adaptation here. Um, I think that it works. Um, my recollection of the book, weirdly, the, the, the one bit that always sticks out is kind of uh, Lizbeth's time in the Caribbean and her affair that she has there and the hurricane and like all sorts of stuff going on. It just felt like that was uh, rather lengthy part of the book that uh, that went on for a little bit. Um, so condensing stuff like that, I felt, worked pretty well here. And I, I think the script is pretty fluid as far as what they're bringing in and what they're not. Um, I guess I didn't really have any specific problems. I thought that it worked. I, you know, I think I did, but I disagree with you on a couple of points. The book, I, I actually felt like the, uh, the lingering bits of her in the Caribbean, I really liked, and I, I felt like the way they truncated in the movie felt like it shouldn't be there at all. Uh, I, I didn't have a good sense when she is, you know, buying all this property and, you know, what, what is she doing with her money, moving the money around. It wasn't clear to me, uh, in the movie, what they were trying to teach us about her activities. And and I felt like I wanted more. I wanted a little bit more depth and a little bit more foundation in what her character's intentions were uh, in, in the first hour of the movie, let's say. Um, and, and as a result, to me, it felt like a different movie. Uh, like, again, I guess it goes back to what I was saying earlier, that this, this feels like so many different movies jammed that I'm watching in parallel. Um, and, but that's uh, so each individual sequence, I think, was fine. I just felt like the 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 overall scaffolding of the film uh, was was lacking a little bit. I can see that. I guess what I was talking about was just all the relationships that she had. Uh, you're talking more about specifically the, um, you know, her move back, her kind of creating this foundation with her new place and all of that sort of stuff. Right. Well, and it felt like there was more motivation they wanted us to get out of how she was using the Wenister money yeah. and and what she was investing in. And they were doing it with very little background, very little sort of definition. And so most of her stuff there felt blurry, where in the book, I enjoyed the relationships. I enjoyed the tone setting. I enjoyed the way they were they were talking more about the mechanics of what she was doing there and why she was doing it. And uh, it, it made her return to Sweden uh, make more sense to me. Uh, but again, I'm with you. It has been a long time since I've read the book in detail. I'm only just sort of flipping through it, um, to get ready for the show. So, um, I, you know, maybe I'm missing something there, but, 
yeah. this is the challenge of I, I think again the 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 middle child challenge and a, a complex you know story multi-faceted story definitely yeah yeah I mean yeah and Daniel Alfredson I I think you know I I don't know if I have anything else to say about him other than I I think that it was uh, again I you know Neil did not come back to direct the second part. I'm not sure exactly what the reasoning is for that. I don't know why, but um, that's another thing. I mean, this is, you know, Daniel is largely stepping into this, not having been a part of the first film. And so he comes in to do parts two and three um, relatively back to back, but uh, um, on the heels, because I mean, all three of these films, we have to remember, we're kind of done at one time. And so I'm guessing that, uh, that Niels was just largely off in the editing room trying to cut the first film to get it ready to go out while Daniel was in production on the second and third films. I mean, that's the only thing that I can really understand, uh, might've played out, but, um, I don't know. It piques my curiosity as to what's the backstory with all of this. That is a crazy schedule. I I can't even imagine. I mean, it's, It's a lot of work to kind of cut all this together. I mean, you know, Numi said, like we talked about last week, she was doing this for a year and a half. She's kind yeah. of in this in the head of Lisbeth Salander. So pretty intense. That's, that is just crazy. Um, but we do have some other cast and crew to talk about. Uh, Lena on. Andre as Erica Berger. Yeah, a much bigger role uh, yeah. this time. It was nice to see a little bit more of her. I think that she works really nicely as Erica. I think she does too. She's great in, I love watching her at work. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, there are some things where we get her in, in her relationship, so she's fine, but she is a, a perfect publication editor. You know, I just absolutely buy her. Um, uh, Peter Anderson is back as Niles Bierman briefly. Yeah, what's uh, nice about that is just kind of the continuation of that dark story and seeing kind of how uh, how it kind of unravels and ends. It's pretty um, a pretty dark ending for him. And uh, you know what's funny is he died in this, and in my head I could have sworn that he was still around in the third one. So it actually was a nice surprise for me to see him turn up dead because. <laughs> For some reason, I thought he lasted longer. You were just ready for him to be gone. Is that what you're saying? You wished him dead. He's a tough and, one, He's and a thus tough it one. happened. I didn't. I, I've never liked the the plot point. Right, just the beat that she uses his gun and then puts it down on his own banister or his own bookshelf. Yeah. I've always hated that. That is, uh, it. It's. I just think she's smarter than that. It feels very much like, um, yeah, a, a writer trying to come up with the way to make the story yeah. work. You know. Yep. Yep, that has always felt weak. Uh, yeah. A real strength in the film, though, is Yasmin Garbi as Miriam Wu. I thought she was fantastic. I loved every bit. Uh, you know, you think she's just she she comes off uh, in the beginning as as more of a lightweight character, but um, boy, she just ends up being a fascinating um, character to watch sort of blossom as we see her without the benefit of having Salander around. What's great about her is. Because, I mean, she's fantastic in this film. She's got a much uh, bigger role um, than the dragon tattoo. And what's great about that is, again, this was clearly a team of people who said, we're going to shoot this trilogy. So, Yasmin, you're going to have a very small part in the first film. 
because you're going to have a bigger part in the second film. But I like that, how they actually um, went to the lengths to build this world. And even if you're getting a small part in one, you're going to have a bigger role in the other. And so it worked really nicely. And she really brings it to the, uh, to the forefront here. Georgie Stakov as Zala, the uh, aforementioned big bad. Papa. Papa. Yeah, he's just a terrible person. And it just frustrates me to no end that uh, that he's left alive at the end of this. It's like, ugh. I mean, he should be dead. He definitely should be dead. Uh, you know, we talked about the flashbacks earlier. I think one of the great strengths in this movie is that we do get some flashbacks, more flashbacks about her and her relationship with her father, um, which I was interested in. I felt like when we finally met him, he was underwritten. Uh, I, I wanted more from him, and he wasn't as diabolical as some of the worst of the worst um, in in the movie. Uh, and, uh, you know, I feel like their ultimate confrontation when she goes after him with the axe, like she was she definitely felt like she was at her worst. And he's I, I'm I, I wasn't convinced he was. I don't know, maybe I just needed him to be hacked. But I mean, there is something there. I mean, he he doesn't get many scenes. And I think that's that might be a little bit of a disappointment as far as what we get from this notorious Zala, who's this this big criminal mastermind. Right. Uh, You know, we don't we don't get that fantastic scene that we had with Martin at the end of the first film where all of a sudden all of Martin's awfulness are, is revealed. Here we just get him sitting down and having this conversation with her. And uh, sure, I mean, he, you know, they take her outside to shoot her and bury her, uh, which is pretty awful. But it's it, you're not getting anything else in his world. You're not seeing any other scenes of, of him doing awful things and everything. And so I felt like I could have used a little bit more of that throughout um, or, or even toward the end, once she kind of uncovers them, is there something else that's happening? But it works. I think it's fine the way it is. But if yes, I agree, it could have been stronger. But that being said, I think that uh, Mickey Sprites as Niederman is just, uh, I mean, I think he's great. He's just terrifying in all of his brutish strength. I really like Niederman as kind of the, um, the sidekick. Oh, yeah, no, he was he was terrific, and uh, I, I think he's you know in in spite of the fact that he totally failed on the barn burning thing, uh, he was a great guy, and they gave him just the right gift, right? And I, I can't remember now. I can't remember what it was called, the thing where he can't feel pain, right? He has that nerve syndrome. Yeah, right, right, yeah. Uh, I forgot to write it down. Yeah, me too. Uh, but it was, um, it's that thing that you've, you know, you hear about that and, uh, you know, people who, this is a real thing where, you know, if you can't feel pain, you put your hand down on a stove, you only know that you're burning when you smell burning flesh. And um, so this is a guy who just really knows how to take a punch and happens to also be like seven feet tall uh, and massive. And so... Um, he's he makes for a fascinating kind of mindless thug. He's he's kind of like he's Jaws, right? You know, if exactly. to, to put it in Bond parlance. But uh, uh, I, I find him actually a little bit more terrifying because he never looks terrifying. Yeah, and there's something about him that is so stinking familiar to me, and I can't ever figure out what it is because I've gone through his credits, and it's nothing that he's done. There's just something about him that strikes me as this this sense of familiarity, but I think it's just kind of this this silent brutish uh, presence that um, that 
it, I guess it's common in films and stuff, but I, you know, I don't know. It's just really creepy. And I think he just plays it really well. I like the way that he is this, this silent force. And it's just, it's really uh, scary. You got to go, I mean, you know, got to go look at his pictures without the blonde hair and smiling. Yeah. Right. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's not the same guy. No, it's totally uh, different. It's, it's like crazy. Yeah. Very different. Very, very different. How'd this do in awards season? It, it didn't do as well as its predecessor. It did okay at the Guldbag Awards, the uh, Swedish uh, Academy Awards. It was nominated for Best Cinematography. Uh, here, it was nominated at the GLAAD Media Awards for Best Film. Uh, it lost to The Kids Are All Right. And the, here also, the Motion Picture Sound Editors, um, they nominated for a Golden Reel Award for Best Sound Editing for the sound effects, Foley dialogue, and ADR in a feature foreign language film, but it lost to Micmacs. Um, but remember, these all came out in the same year, so it actually was competing against Dragon Tattoo. So it's possible that they just canceled each other out. There's like a break in the time-space continuum. Yes, they cancel exactly. each, they just cancel each other out. Uh, obviously, we've been talking about Dragon Tattoo, the uh, the Millennium Trilogy. Uh, we have the remake of the first one, and we talked a little bit about the the remake of the second two uh, being stuck. Did we learn anything new? Uh, I, I don't think they're stuck. I just don't think that there are any updates other than what we last saw yeah. with, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, that they've been effectively dropped. No, I mean, Fincher. they're they're working on it. No, well, Fincher's, yeah. The fin- Fincher remakes, those have been dropped, yes. Mm-hmm. I was thinking of the 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 uh, production going into the other the other two when you said oh, the other right. two the I was spiders, of the other two uh, the yeah, spiders, the spiders web, web and spiders the web eye, girl with an eye for an eye or whatever yeah uh, those ones um, I think are all moving forward pretty uh, fluidly at this point forward to that how about the budget now you already mentioned that this thing, uh, he had a much smaller budget to work with. How did that play out in the box office? Yeah, I mean, like I said, uh, Alfredson had only budget about 4 million euros, which is about 5.9 million or 6.6 in today's dollars. And like I said, that's less than half of what Oplu had uh, to make the first film. This movie opened in Sweden, Denmark, Finland, and Norway on September 18th, 2009, where it was a big box office success, albeit not quite as big as its predecessor. It did finally open in the States uh, on three times as many screens as Dragon Tattoo, which I thought was pretty interesting, on July 9th, 2010, opposite Despicable Me and Predators. The movie went on to make $9 million domestically and $61.6 million internationally, raking in a total in today's dollars of $79.2 million. It didn't break $100 million like its predecessor did, but with its lower budget, it actually is the more profitable of the two, making back 12 times its budget, whereas Dragon Tattoo only made back 8 times. It ended up with an adjusted profit per finish minute of $563,000, so pretty good for uh, little, little Lisbeth Salander and company. It was fine for me. Ultimately, it was fine. There were some real high points in strong scenes, uh, and a couple of the characters were great. Overall, the film was a little bit more haphazard than I would have hoped, and uh, not as uh, compelling, emotionally compelling, certainly as the first movie, um, or even as the book. 
I think that it works. I think it's uh, just kind of an effective, interesting uh, journey that we go on. But um, but I also felt like it was it was pretty um, uh, pretty standard in a lot of uh, ways. Um, I still give it a little more. Uh, I, I give a little more credit to Daniel Alfredson. I think that there was some stuff that he was doing. You know, the more I think about it, I, I and I don't know if I honestly can't remember the books well enough. But uh, so I don't know if I can attribute it to Stieg Larsson or if I'm attributing it to um, uh, the the person who's adapting the script here, um, uh, Jonas Freikberg. I I did feel like there were a lot of things that just felt like a lot more obvious and overt choices like the um the bad cop who is just so obviously against uh miriam and lesbians and all that it's just like oh geez rudy i wonder who the bad guy is i wonder who's the one who's spilling the beans to the press like it was just it was so overt that it was just kind of painfully obvious when it was revealed that he's the one who's doing it right yeah, yeah, it was. But you know what's funny? My memory of that in the book, and I maybe this is just jaded because of how I felt about it in the movie. My memory of it in the book is that he was actually even more repulsive, and yet you never really believed that he was the bad guy. And, to, and so it was a surprise because we thought he was such an ideologically bad person, not that he was actually a bad cop. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, I mean, and that could be. I, I honestly just don't remember it from the book. That's why I can't really yeah. say if it's Stieg Larsson who has the problem with the, the way that he's writing. Um, I mean, obviously, he has you know this thing about men who hate women. Yeah. Um, so it was it just a continuation of that, or is it just bad writing and turned it into an obvious trope, right? Yeah. I don't know. But there are just a lot of you know obvious tropes that I thought that they were pulling here, like when Paolo is following uh Niederman and uh, you know he goes to call and all of a sudden the cell phones aren't working and it's just it there were a lot of little moments like that I'm like of course the cell phones don't work here you know it just it's like uh you know it just seemed like standard stuff it's still an enjoyable film I really enjoy it don't get me wrong but I just felt like there was a little bit more standard stuff happening throughout I think it's time for us to rank it all right, let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about on this very show. We're going to add this one to it and see how it stacks up on our list. You can just swipe over in your show notes in your uh, podcast app of choice, maybe Overcast, and uh, you'll see the link. You can just tap on the link to Flickchart, and it'll take you right to the movie. First up, we have The Girl Who Played With Fire, or Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Oh Brother. I'm going to say Oh Brother. The Girl Who Played With Fire, or The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. I'm soft on this one. Yeah. I'm probably Munchausen, but I could go either way. I have problems with Munchausen, but I feel like I'm going to say that just because of the the imagination in it. So I'm going to go that way. All right. The Girl Who Played With Fire, or hey, look at that. Uh, Jumping back to uh, our Swedish Listener's Choice episode, The Immigrants. (laughs) Also with uh, uh, Daniel Alfredson's father, who played in that film. I'm going to say The Girl Who Played With Fire. I'm going to say The Girl Who Played With Fire. Next up, The Girl Who Played With Fire or From Hell. Fire and Hell, Pete. Which (laughs) direction do you go? I'm going to go to hell. All right. I am... uh, I will be very surprised if you don't go to hell. Would you? Yes. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to say From Hell. I really did uh, find a lot to enjoy in that one. The Girl Who Played With Fire or Defending Your Life. I will take The Girl Who Played With Fire, please. Me too. All right. The Girl Who Played With Fire or Black Christmas. 
Girl Who Played With Fire. <laughs> yes, indeed. I, I did enjoy Black Christmas, but yeah. The Girl Who Played With Fire or Postmortem, everybody's favorite mortuary comedy. <laughs> I'm going to say The Girl Who Played With Fire. <laughs> I am too. All right. Well, that leaves it at 270 out of 329. Ah, uh, that's interesting. That's actually lower than I ex- expected it. It's lower than it ended up on mine uh, out of a thousand and five movies. It, it hit 509, which is just right smack in the middle. Well, it's got some tough choices at the top. And so I think yeah. that's why it, it struggled a bit. But, uh, you know, it still is an enjoyable film. And I think it's it's in a spot where... Uh, a sequel like this that struggles a little bit is probably going to end up. So I'm okay with that. You know, one of the things I didn't mention uh, or I didn't talk about, we talked about this as the origin story last week of of this uh, sort of vigilante um, feminine hero. And I, I actually, that's an element of this film that I, I did like. I like how they portrayed her. I like how they showed her in the makeup, right? She takes on the mask. And, uh, and I found that uh, a, a really nice treat as she is... <laughs> torturing that guy hanging him up in front of his daughter um, in the middle of his living room I thought that was fantastic and uh, and so I just like the development of that part of her uh, uh, continuing her sort of origin story so that was nice even with the clown makeup even with the clown makeup <laughs> uh, well this one ended up at uh, 810 out of uh, uh, 3884 on my chart so it's a it's a pretty good spot yeah uh, all tell told it's not quite 80 percent but it's it's uh, pretty high I I do enjoy watching it what are you gonna do for this uh, for your letterbox pick letterbox.com slash the next reel I struggle with this one but I I think I'm at a three and a half with this one I am at a two and a half but I'll give it a heart uh, and so I think what does that do for us takes us to a three with a heart Three with a heart. Yeah, that's All where right. we land. I'll give it to it. There this was good. Go. So that means next week we're going to wrap up this original Swedish trilogy, right? Next week we're finishing it up with The Girl Who Kicks the Hornet's Nest. Or uh, what was the fantastic Swedish title? Um, I know we're probably going to talk about it next week. It is um, The uh, the Castle in the Sky That <laughs> Blew Up. <laughs> oh, yeah. I remember that. Luftslottet som sprangdes, <laughs> if I can try uh, my hand at that title. Now, I was reading about this. Luftslottet is actually a Swedish idiom, which literally means the air castle, but figuratively means a pipe dream. So, oh. so that might help if you know that it's not necessarily a literal title. I'll take it. So it's like the end of the pipe dream, right? Yeah, right. The end of the pipe dream. That's a good way to end the trilogy. Yeah, I think that works. I'll buy it. Well, this is a great, uh, another uh, great conversation, Andy. I appreciate your time, as always, sir, because you know when the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, Amazon. And I should, uh, we should say, as uh, the, the overall, how would you characterize the overall theme of one-star comments this, uh, this week? Uh, wah! I don't like <laughs> subtitles. Wah! <laughs> read the book, not going to read the movie. <laughs> I just pooped.
<laughs> That's about what most of them are. Oh, so bad. Come on, humanity. Let's see if we can bring it around. And uh, XD is going to try it with his one star, long, boring, and painfully slow to watch. I found the movie dragged. It was painfully slow to watch. Having to read all the subtitles didn't help move things along. The movie is two hours long, but it felt like three plus hours. The fact that we don't get a satisfying ending is also a bummer. There's no way I'll watch either the first or subsequent movies in this series. To me, each title or movie in a series ought to hold its own, have its own beginning, middle, and satisfying end. To bring up threads in a storyline and leave them dangling at the end is just not fair to paying viewers. Wow. Notice did not go too far down the road of having to read the movie. That's right. I applaud XD for that. But if you think two hours was long, <laughs> man, do I have a version for you. I just love that uh, that XD, this is, this is I, I'm just going to jump right in here, the girl who played with fire. I'm just going <laughs> to jump in and watch this, and it better hold its own. You Way know, though, I, there. you know, I can see that, like, there, there are people who understand movie series as uh, series like James Bond, James Bond or Star right. Trek, right? I mean, they just they're generally standalone titles, and I totally it is an absolutely valid impression. I I buy that, and this is not that movie. Well, I would love to talk to XD about the Empire Strikes Back. Then, ah, look at you! Go. I know. Drop Here I am. Big Ep5. That's right. All right. Well, I have uh, a one star from French Frog Triple Seven who says rubbish to avoid. Actually, who screams rubbish to avoid <laughs> at all costs. Stieg Larsson's series is pure amoral insanity straight from hell itself. It has no head or tail. All of it is unbelievable rubbish rubbish at the highest level. If this is the, quote, best that Swedes can come up with, then I'll think twice before I pay their country a visit. (laughs) Don't bother. Don't waste your precious time as time is money. And this would definitely be the worst investment of it ever. Plus, God will be very angry with you. That was awesome. I'll think twice before I pay their country a visit. Wow. Oh, very uh, serious, this French Frog 777. These comments, this one, uh, there were 19 comments on this one. Uh, <laughs> you might want to stick with the Ten Commandments or maybe a Robert Schuller DVD. Perhaps top it off with an Amy Grant concert. <laughs> <laughs> Or, I like this one, remove French from your name, as, after insulting the Swedes, you are staining the French by association. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, All I can say is, I hope our Swedish friends are over there laughing with us, because (laughs) I I apologize uh, on behalf Uh. of all (laughs) U.S. Amazon users and commenters. And we definitely want to come to Sweden so, so bad. Meet up. Meet up. Yes. Here, here. Thanks, Amazon. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book? It's been like decades. I would much rather use Kindle or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextreel.com slash 
Audible. Okay, we're going to play a little game. I'm going to name a series from season seven, and you try to guess how many movies from it were adaptations. <laughs> nice. I own this game. We shall see. Here we go, starting with an easy one. The Millennium Trilogy. <laughs> Seriously? The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, The Girl Who Played With Fire, The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest. Die Hard. Uh, well, Die Hard 1 and 2. Except Nothing Lasts Forever, which is where Die Hard came from, isn't on Audible. What? Crime of the Century! Okay, 1968 musicals. Uh, Mary Poppins. Nice. We've covered a lot of great movies that started as books. Books like East of Eden, Giant. Or All You Zombies, upon which Predestination was based. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. We've dropped the dynamically inserted ads because they're so annoying and have no connection to our content. Plus, they just jam those things in wherever they see fit. We listened to you when you said you didn't like them, so now we're directly appealing to you, our dear listener. Please consider an Audible subscription to help support The Next Reel and our family of podcasts. I have been using Audible along with my family for decades now. I love it, and I have read hundreds of books through it. I couldn't be more pleased with their service, and I know you'll love it too. Head to thenextreel.com slash audible and get your free trial. It really helps us out, and you have a world of over 200,000 audiobooks open to you. So much great material available. Dive in with a free 30-day trial at thenextreel.com slash audible. Start listening to amazing audiobooks of your favorite movie source material with your first free audiobook today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. Audible. 